All right, Psalm 67 is where we pick up this evening in our study through the book of Psalms together. And just want to say in advance, Psalm 67, 68, particularly we'll see in Psalm 69, uh, a very messianic psalm. Some of these next few psalms uh, have a lot of prophetic undertone in them. Uh, There's a lot within these psalms that in some ways... Certainly, as the Spirit was inspiring, the writers, the psalmist, were looking further down through the age in human history, in some ways seeing things directly of the work of Christ in his first coming, as well as, as we'll see, aspects of his second coming, things of the kingdom age or the millennium, that thousand-year reign of Christ after he returns uh, back to the earth. And so in light of that, I just want to kind of say in advance, I'm going to maybe give a here and there maybe a little bit more cross-references than what we typically do in regards to considering some other passages that help shed a little bit more light on some of the things that are being inferred perhaps in some of these psalms, if you're a note taker or you want to turn to those passages, uh, but certainly we see a little bit more of that in some of these next few psalms in front of us. Again, Psalm 67, sort of anonymous. Once again, as we said before, this psalm, we are not told specifically the human instrument, as oftentimes we're told David or Hezekiah or Asaph. Uh, here we're not told who gave to us this psalm, but other than the fact that it was the Holy Spirit the author himself, it's to the chief musician once again, so it was something that was to be set to music, and that's always interesting to think about, that when you read these psalms, that they were actually intended not just to be used as poetic language, but many of them were set to music. What the melody was, what the tune was, we're not always certain, uh, but you know, great ways of memory a lot of times come through music. You know, you get a song stuck in your head, and God's the author of music, and God's ultimately the chief musician. Sometimes we read this statement to the chief musician, and, and I do tend to believe it was passed on to a literal musician. And the wonderful thing about musicians is they are able with a God-given ability that has been given to them uh, to be song creators, to be able to take things and put them to music. I mean, think of some of the beautiful courses and praise songs that we know that we have that actually come uh, from the Psalms uh, or from other places in Scripture. You know, one of the very songs we sang this evening, uh, right away, I picked up with the words in it, you know, in regards to the things of God being yes and amen. That comes from Second Corinthians chapter 1, the very passage we're now getting ready to move into on Sunday morning. And so it's a beautiful thing when we're able to take the word of God and putting into musical uh, connection and with a tune and a melody. I think it's a wonderful gift when people can, can do that very thing. So this psalm was to the chief musician, notice, on stringed instruments. So it was played on some type of a stringed instrument, a psalm, a song, we're specifically told. And this psalm begins by saying, God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth and your salvation among all nations. So as the psalmist begins this particular psalm or song, Uh, His heart here we see is that the way of the Lord, as well as the salvation of the Lord, not just be experienced among the Jewish people themselves, but ultimately all nations, people of all tribes and tongues and kindred. And ultimately, of course, the Bible tells us salvation was to the Jew first, but then also to the Gentile. And God's intention always, though he works specifically through the chosen nation of Israel, 
giving them the word of God and the temple and the sacrifices and the prophets, as well as ultimately, of course, the Messiah. God's heart was that the nation of Israel would become a light to the rest of the world and that they ultimately would bring salvation. That was God's promise. Remember, originally to Abraham, God said to Abraham, Genesis 12, in you, meaning in your uh, people, Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation, in you all nations of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, through the Jewish people, God wanted to bring blessing and salvation to all the world, to all nations. And here the psalmist is indicating that was his heart, that the way of the Lord might be known on all the earth and your salvation among all nations. And again, Understand, in that day, even geographically, you know, God doesn't do anything arbitrarily. If you ever take a look on a map and you realize in that known world, Israel is situated in such a location that the major continents around it, you know, you know Asia and Africa, and, uh, you know, when you look around where Israel is situated, to get in that day from what much of the known world was – in order to pass from one continent to other to get from Africa to Asia or from Asia to Europe, you had to pass through Israel. It was a centrally located uh, particular spot geographically, and, and God wasn't arbitrarily just choosing that piece of real estate and planning his chosen people there. God does everything with a purpose. So in some ways, God knew, I'm going to put the light of the world right in the middle of the world. So therefore, if you wanted to get to any of those other locations, you typically had to pass through Israel to get to wherever else you might want to go. And so God knew if these people can follow my ways and reflect my salvation and be the light that I want them to be, for the Jews, unlike you and I, we're told to go out into the world and to be the light of the world and to bring the gospel. For the Jew, God was bringing people to them. And God just wanted them to be a light and be a witness. And as they honored God and God blessed them as they followed his way and his salvation, they would be a tremendous light of who the one true and living God was. And and God wanted them to recognize it. Of course, they uh, forfeited in many ways God's plan for them in regards to that. But here the psalmist is expressing that heart. And he begins it by saying there in verse 1, God, be merciful to us and bless us. And may he, he says, cause his face to shine upon us. So the psalmist wanted, notice God, to be merciful in pardoning them for their errors. Again, that's what mercy is. Mercy is giving a pardon, not getting what you do deserve. That's what mercy is. And thankfully, God is a God of great mercy. So he says, God, please give us merciful pardon because we know that we are guilty of many errors. We know we have a lot of weaknesses and a lot of flaws. So please, God, be merciful to us and not only pardon us for our errors, but he's also pleading for God's favor as well. Because he says, God, we pray you not only be merciful to us, but please, he says, as a people, bless us. The idea there is to you know, pour out your favor, your blessing, bring prosperity to us, bring success to us. And again, as I said, because they understood to a degree where they were located, that if God was merciful and blessed them and, and showed his way and his salvation among them, the result of that, that the rest of the world would would be known by God on the earth and others would see who God was. Now, I love this little statement here where he's asking for God in verse one. He says, cause your face to shine upon us. The idea there is, is God, cause your face to smile upon us. That is, as you look upon us, God, in your mercy, 
and your grace towards us. We pray that with smiling favor, you would look upon us. You know, when I look at that phrase, for God's face to shine upon us, it kind of makes me think about how, uh, you know, when you see someone perhaps that you love or maybe you really delight in, we say, man, your face just lights up when you see that person. You know, maybe you haven't seen your son or daughter in a while. They're away and they come back home and your face just, you know, lights up to be able to see them or maybe a grandchild or, you know, and, and your face just lights up when you see a person. That's the idea. Your face shining with favor and delight because you're so happy to see that person and it's such a, they're meaningful in their relationship to you and you have such a love and a delight towards them that your face just shines upon them. Well, what an interesting thing to picture God having that heart towards us as people. That the face of God would shine upon us with favor. And I think that's really good because some of us kind of picture maybe God grimacing at us. Or we picture God like this great, you know, angry policeman in the sky just ready to write the next ticket, you know, and he's just trying to pull us over. You, I've just been waiting for you to break the speed limit. And we have this idea of God, this cruel, mean judge or this, and, and the reality is, is the Bible portrays God, yes, as righteous, but also as a father and kind and merciful and wanting to actually bless. And so he says, God, please. May you be benevolent towards us. Cause your face to shine us that your way, he says, people need to know your way, God, that your way may be known on the earth, he says, and that your salvation would be known among the nation. The psalmist wanted God's ways of things to be something that all people would become aware and familiar with. Why? Because that would bring great blessing to all nations. I mean, could you imagine if not only our nation who was founded with a Judeo-Christian ethic. I mean, that is why if you go to Washington, D.C., they're still etched in stone, and maybe we'll carve that out of the stone. I don't know, but it was interesting they etched it all in stone. In God we trust, one nation under God. I mean, we actually said that stuff when we founded our nation. There was the understanding, you know, that, you know, sin is a reproach to any people, but when, when God is the Lord, there's great, there's, there's blessing upon a nation that honors God and honors God's ways. Just again, just the ways of God, moral, righteous boundaries and the ways which God has prescribed for us to live in a healthy and a beneficial way as our creators. We just honor him as our creator. And so the psalmist says, Lord, that people would know your way on the earth. Could you imagine if every nation on the earth knew the way of God and honored the ways of God? I mean, can you imagine how quickly all the news would change? If every nation on the earth governed their people and conducted their civil you know, uh, you know, ways and, and, and their social lives according to the way of the Lord on the earth, it would be a vastly different earth, wouldn't it? But the problem is, is that we don't do that. And so he says, Lord, because we don't, we need your salvation among the nations. That is, we need the way of God's deliverance because often we don't follow his way. But the psalmist wanted that. Lord, I want your way to be known on the earth and your salvation among all nations. And, you know, that should be our heart as well, that we would sort of plead the same with the Lord. God, be merciful to us. Bless us as your church today. Cause your face to shine upon us, Lord, that, that your way may be known in the earth. Because if you're merciful to us and you bless us and you, you cause your favor to shine upon us as your congregation now and this day as the church, Lord, then we can help your way to be known on the earth. And we can see other nations experience your salvation as the gospel is brought to people of every ethnicity and every tribe and tongue and social status. 
He says, verse three, and let the peoples praise you. He knew God was worthy of being honored. God was worthy of worship. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you, in case you didn't hear it the first time. Oh, let the nations, he says, be glad and sing for joy. For you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on the earth. So he looks to this importance of the nations praising God, of all peoples being able to give to God honor and glory that he is worthy of. Again, uh, and he ultimately speaks of something, I believe here, verse three and four, that will not fully culminate until the day when Jesus reigns over all the earth. Ultimately, these very verses, verse three and four, are not gonna find their complete fulfillment where not only the peoples are praising God, until all nations can be glad and sing for joy, he says, for God, you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on the earth. As long as man is governing himself, there will always be problems. That has been clear from the beginning. If there's one thing that is evident from the Garden of Eden, when it only had two people to be governed, is humanity cannot govern themselves. We don't know how to govern ourselves. That's our problem. We reject God's authority. We reject God's governance. And as soon as we do that, we don't acknowledge that ultimately he's the final authority. He should be who we look to to govern and rule over us. That's where problems start to happen. That's where the nation of Israel began to break down because initially, in a sense, they were a theocracy. Though they had human leaders as shepherds and instruments who received direction from God and then implemented God's direction, They didn't go to God for any other reason other than give us your direction that we can as intermediates, as intermediates, just pass on your direction and God, you guide us where you want us to go. You tell us what you want us to do. You give us your laws to govern us. But though they were a theocracy originally, which means they were God ruled, ultimately what happened? Give us a king like all the other nations. And and, and they, they didn't want God to govern them. And as soon as they wanted a human king, God said, okay, I'll let you try that out for a while. But you're going to see, I'll detain advance, here's all the problems that are going to come with it. And part of it was even tax issues. God knew everything. And, and, and they suffered that right away. And then we just see the process begin to just kind of spiral from there. But yet, wonderful thing is there is coming a day, the Bible says, when Jesus is going to return the righteous King of kings and Lord of lords. And exactly what you and I read here in verses 3 and 4, the nations not just our nation, the nations, plural, are going to be glad and sing for joy for you, Jehovah God, shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on the earth. The Bible speaks of this in Isaiah chapter two. Let me just read you a portion from there. If you want to turn there, you can. You don't have to. I'll read it to you. But in Isaiah chapter two, it describes this time when Christ will return and when he is literally going to reign on the earth and judge people governing the nations. Isaiah chapter two describes it in this way. Let me read it to you. It says, the word that came to Isaiah, the son of Amos concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And listen, all nations shall flow to it that is flowing to the mountain of the Lord when Jesus returns, 
The Bible says he returns, he touches down upon the Mount of Olives, it splits in two, he rides up into Jerusalem and sets up his throne there. That is where he will, as he returns back to the earth, then establish his literal reign on the earth, and he will reign, the Bible tells us, for a thousand years, literally being here on the earth as the king over all the world, and all nations shall flow in it. Verse 3 says, many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Listen, he will teach us his ways. What did the psalmist just pray? Oh, that all the earth could know your ways, God. If all the earth knew your ways, and here, there's coming a day when Jesus will be here and he will teach us his ways. I'm not going to have a job anymore. It's a good thing. He will teach us his ways and we shall, here's what's even better, walk in his paths. That is, people will actually want to honor the ways of King Jesus when he's teaching For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. That is those who do wrong. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. That is when Jesus is ruling and reigning, they will take weapons of warfare and they will transition them into weapons, into into instruments that are used for agriculture for food production. In other words, they will take implements that were used to destroy one another on humanity and instead will transition them into instruments to help one another, to care for one another, to make sure everyone is fed and cared for and loved and supported. So rather than destroying one another, humanity will actually be trying to help and to assist one another out of love because there's a righteous king finally ruling. And nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Warfare will cease. Imagine that. A complete cessation of all warfare on the entire globe. Neither shall they learn war anymore. People don't study how to destroy one another. They're not in hidden way places studying and trying to figure out how to make the next bomb. Or what's the next best bio warfare. They're not studying war anymore. People aren't wanting to ruin and destroy each other. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 11 references a a very similar thing as well, where it talks about how there shall come forth a rod of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of his roots. And again, that same idea there, Isaiah 11, 4, he shall with righteousness judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, that is with the word of the Lord. And with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked, purging them from their ruinous activity. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness, the belt of his waist. And then, of course, the Bible starts to describe conditions on the earth as well. When Christ is reigning, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Aggressive animals are no longer predators. Instead, there's a peaceableness even over the animal kingdom. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Imagine that. Your toddler going out and grabbing a lion by the beard, saying, come here. Come over here and play with my friends. Because everything's become peaceable when Christ is reigning. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. 
The weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. So again, a young child playing by a cobra's hole. No danger, no threat, no harm. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Again, you notice, where does this stem from? Not just that Christ is reigning, but there's also a very strong influence of the fact that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord because people know God, they know God's ways, and they understand his ways are right and best for us. That's what brings about, to a degree, the conditions that are drastically different during the kingdom age on this earth. That's what causes things to be completely transitioned from how they are on the earth at that time. So again, a glorious day is coming. A glorious time that you and I as believers are going to get to share in actually participating, ruling and reigning with Christ in that time. For those of us who know Jesus, the glorious thing is we're going to be taken out, raptured, removed, caught away. Before the seven year period of tribulation and judgment comes upon this earth where God deals again with Israel one last seven year period and humanity is severely judged for their rejection of God and Christ. But then at the end of that, seven years later, we return with the Lord in our glorified bodies and we help him set up his kingdom. And what I'm reading about, we get to actually participate in that. We get to actually assist him in regulating and bringing that to pass on the earth and enjoying that for a thousand years. Enjoying that kingdom age as really heaven on earth comes to pass. You know, we talk about in the prayer, you know, your, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's going to literally come to pass one day. It's going to literally come to pass. And here the psalmist, I think, is to a degree reflecting upon that, whether he realizes it or not, he's speaking of that day. He says here, when you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on the earth. And he says, the end of verse four, say law. Think about that. Well, we just did. So let's go on to verse five. Verse five, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you, then, notice, when, when people are praising God, then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. These are words of confidence and faith, believing that God's a God who blesses. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. So notice the psalmist sees the importance and value of everyone, again, glorifying God, honoring God, worshiping God. Here he's kind of almost giving now the invitation. Let all the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. Again, he's being repetitious. He said the same thing in verse three. He's already repeating it again. And he says that when people begin to honor God and we begin to worship God and give him proper glory, it results in good things. He says when we're praising God and giving him proper honor with our lives and our worship, he says, then, verse 6, that's a resulting statement, the earth shall begin to yield her increase. Again, God spoke about this as a nation of Israel. He told them Deuteronomy 28 and in Leviticus as well, that when they honored his word and lived according to his ways, that they would bring blessing upon themselves. There would be fruitfulness and there would be blessing. If they lived according to God's ways and honored God, the result of that would be fruitfulness and prosperity and God's blessing would be upon their lives and here he speaks of this in a confident sense. Lord, if we are honoring you, then he says, then we believe our own God shall bless us, that God shall bless us and all the ends of the earth shall hear him. What a wonderful thing to a degree to know 
that we can determine whether we cause our life to experience a bunch of curse and problems and regrets or if we want to experience the blessing and the goodness of God and a fruitfulness where we're yielding fruit and season and, and enjoying to a degree the blessings of the Lord upon his people as a creator. And we can determine that. How? You either honor God or you don't. You honor God, you, you, you bring about the blessing of the Lord upon your life. You disregard God, then in a sense you bring a curse upon your own life and the problems of rejecting God that go along with it. Psalm 68, we're told this time, is a psalm of David. Again, it's another song, another musical psalm that was put to music. And he begins this psalm saying, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those who hate him flee before him. So you notice Psalm 68, we're going to see as we work our way through it, is basically God's victorious procession into Jerusalem, particularly. You'll notice when we get over to verse 24, there he actually says, they have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary, which was in Jerusalem. Now, some believe that this Psalm of David was written in connection to David bringing the ark back into Jerusalem. Remember where David had a heart to do that. And of course, the ark represented the, the presence of God and God's glory, his manifest power and presence among his people. And again, David's heart in wanting to bring the ark back wasn't just to use it as a magical box. What David wanted was, was to bring the presence of the Lord back into the center of the national life of his people. And that's why David wanted to bring the ark. That's why David wanted to build a temple because David realized what we are missing is the centrality of God at the center of our nation. And David understood that reality. We can't go wrong, though we're an imperfect people, if we at least put God at the center of our nation. And so David wanted the presence of God at the center of the people's lives nationally. And some think that this was written in connection to that. I, there are some allusions to that. We can't be certain. But clearly, this is a psalm to celebrate the faithfulness of God over his enemies and all that seek to oppose his plans. And you notice there are a lot of people out there even today still that seek to oppose God and to oppose God's ways and to oppose God's salvation and to oppose God's plans and even to oppose God's people. And so this is a psalm that's really a victory psalm where God's procession of his presence and power comes back into the center of the nation and it's a celebration of his faithfulness to triumph over his enemies. And that's kind of the, the general flow and concept we'll see. So here the psalmist begins by calling upon God to arise, to awaken, to action. And he says, let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him. Isn't that kind of sad to think about people not only not being interested in God, but actually hating God? I mean, that's that strong term if you really think about it. I mean, it's one thing to just be like apathetic towards God. It's one thing to just say, you know, I just don't believe a God exists. But the Bible on numerous occasions actually indicates there are people who actually hate God. They actually have hatred within their hearts towards God as their creator, towards God as an authority, towards God as a righteous or moral standard or ruler. And there are people who actually have not just apathy, but actual animosity towards God and anything that has to do with God, his people, his plans, his principles of righteousness and morality. So he says, let those who hate God flee before him. 
May they run as God arises in his power. And he says, verse 2, again, a lot of poetic language we'll see in this. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. So again, in the same way that smoke, you can just give a strong breath and blow smoke away. So that's how God can just, with the breath of his mouth, like smoke, just instantaneously blow them away. As wax melts before the fire. Again, you put fire to wax, it doesn't have much chance to stand up against it. Well, the Bible says our God is a consuming fire. And he says, as wax melts before the fire, so the wicked perish at the presence of God. Again, if the consuming fire of God's power comes against the wicked, they have no chance. And God can instantaneously do away with them. And this is the thing that really, if you think about it, is almost kind of, Somewhat humorous, but at the same time, completely just insanity. People who are so hateful and antagonistic towards God and his ways and actually don't even recognize the reality that they're like weak wax or just, you know, the the fragility of their lives and their existence. And as if somehow you can just oppose God and you you really think that's going to succeed. I mean, just the, the irrationality of that is just... Very sad. And here he says, God, you can just like smoke, just blow them away in an instant or cause them to just completely melt. Now, on the other side of that, he says, verse three, however, in the same way, God can quickly deal with his enemies and destroy them. He says to you and I who are in right relationship with him, the righteous, those in right relationship with God, he says, but let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. And that's a great reminder The prior verses tell us God has enemies. There are people that hate God, and they're going to manifest that by the way they live in this world together with us on this earth. But he says, but as the righteous, we shouldn't become hateful towards all those God haters. Ouch. Because that's what we can tend to slip into sometimes, right? We just become so frustrated and vexed in our spirit with these God haters, and they do exist with God-haters and people who are anti-Christian and, and everything that's anti the way of God and morality and biblical truth. And we can actually, instead of the righteous being glad and rejoicing before God, knowing, look, our God is powerful and he's in control. And thankfully, we're in right relationship. And thankful, God, that you broke into my life because I could have been a God-hater too. I could have been there. I don't lack for potential, neither do you. But by the grace of God, I could have been that same spot. Thank you, God, that you broke my spirit, that you opened my eyes and brought me out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and that you've made me in right relationship with you. So, Lord, I'm just glad about that. I'm thankful. And and that we would celebrate being in relationship with God and have a, a concern and almost a pity at times for people who are completely out of relationship with God. That's where God wants our heart to be because it's so easy in the flesh and in our humanity just get so angry and irritated, right, with everybody who's not in right relationship with God. And so God says, no, let the righteous be glad. We should be representations of gladness, not walking around, you know, angry and hostile. And, you know, truth be told, I mean, a lot of us are doing that from time to time. And I would venture to say it's a fair estimation to say probably within the last year and a half, Christians are doing that in some ways from my observation Pretty much. You know, we're, we're leading the charge on instead of being glad of being angry about everything and upset about everything. And here he says, let the righteous be glad. 
Rejoice before God. Rejoice before him exceedingly. He says, verse 4, sing to God, worship, sing praises to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Again, the picture there is just God, you know, riding in a victorious chariot, just riding over the clouds. He's in control of all things in creation. By his name, Yah, or the shortened version of Yahweh, or the word hallelujah, which is praise the Lord, rejoice before him. And notice, he's not just a God of great power, a God who can conquer his enemies like a strong king or a, a, a victorious warrior. But notice, he shows another side of God. He's also very compassionate, this powerful, almighty king who's a ruler and a conqueror and a victor in battle. He's also very caring and compassionate because he reflects upon God in a different way. Verse 5, he's a father of the fatherless, a defender of of widows. Again, these were the most vulnerable in that society, the orphans and the widows, because orphans had no parental figure to take care of them, to protect them, to provide for them, and widows in the same way. If they did not have a family member to care for them, someone who was widowed, especially a widowed woman, was in a very vulnerable spot because she was not going to be able to survive, to care for herself, to protect herself from being taken advantage of. And so widows and orphans, were they were the vulnerable in the society. And he says here that God becomes a father to the fatherless. He sees those in that condition, and God has that parental heart. He sees the vulnerable and the weak, those who need to be protected, those who need uh, you know, special help and provision. And he has a heart, a tender, compassionate heart towards these. He comes to their defense and protects them. That's the heart of God. Is God in his holy habitation? He says, in God, verse 6, sets the solitary, that is those who are alone, those who've been abandoned, those who've been isolated and set apart from everyone else. They've been you know, living in a solitary, lonely condition. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. So he delivers people who are bound in chains, you know, in slavery, he doesn't just set them free. He says he brings them out into prosperity. He sets them free, and then he prospers them and actually causes them to thrive. He takes them from slavery and oppression into prosperity. That's the kind of God he is. But the rebellious dwell in a dry land. God opposes those who oppose him. He doesn't let them succeed in their rebellion. You know, I love what he says there in verse 6, however, about God setting the solitary in families, because certainly I think God does that on a literal uh, level and, and, he, and he does that in a, in a realistic way. You know, he puts people into families who are lonely, uh, you know, gives the person maybe who's been abandoned by their parents an adoptive family or something of that nature. But to a degree, I, I see how that happens spiritually as well through Jesus, because the Bible says that we receive the spirit of adoption and we've all been adopted in the family of God. And the truth be told, there are a lot of us who probably to a degree find more of a family connection among the eternal family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, than we do our own biological families in some ways. And I don't in any way want to diminish the fact that we should honor our natural God-given families. The Bible teaches that we should do that. But Jesus also said at times, sometimes our, our actual enemies become the members of our own household because we don't share the common thread of living for Jesus and eternal life being within us. And when we come to Christ, something happens, and we're taken out of one kingdom and one spiritual race of people, if you would, and we're brought into a completely different spiritual tribe. 
And so because of that, sometimes we have more of a connection. You ever experienced that? More of a connection with our church family and our spiritual family and more of a bond with our brothers and sisters in Christ than we do our own natural families. God takes the lonely and the solitary, maybe who feel completely alone in their own family or been abandoned by their own family, and God says, I'm going to give you a family. I'm going to put you in the family of God with brothers and sisters and spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers and spiritual children that I can give to you to invest in and, and to, you know, to, to care for them, maybe if you don't have the opportunity. And God has a wonderful way of doing this. And the truth of the matter is our eternal family is who we're going to be with forever. So that's not a bad thing. <laughs> our biological family, there's no guarantee we're going to be with them eternally. The people who we're bonded with spiritually as the same father in heaven and brothers and sisters, that is our long-lasting family. So to a degree, the spirit does run thicker than blood. We say blood runs thicker than water, right? The spirit of God runs thicker than that even because there's a bond that happens and God wonderfully does that. How wonderful the family of God that he gives to us to give us that sense of maybe what's been lost in our natural families. He sets the solitary into a spiritual family. Oh God, he says, when you went out before your people, verse seven, he says, when you marched through the wilderness here, the picture is God leading the march. Notice his presence is with his people and that's why they were victorious. And again, picturesque language here. He says, the earth shook, the heavens dropped rain, at the presence of God. The idea is that the presence of God was so powerful that literally the, the clouds just, you know, they, they couldn't hold back the rain anymore. And just the rains began to, uh, you know, fall because just creation was responding to the power of God's presence being amongst his people. The heavens began to drop rain at the presence of God. He says, Sinai itself, a mountain, was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Again, just the picture of the presence of God such a powerful, powerful influence. You, O oh God, verse 9, he says, who sent a plentiful rain whereby you confirmed your inheritance. So again, the rains were the way God would indicate his blessing because that would cause crops to be fruitful. If God withheld the rain, crops would struggle. There would be famine and starvation. And so God would withhold the rains as an act of judgment. He would bring the rain as a way of confirming his blessing and causing there to be fruitfulness and growth and so forth. So he says, you confirmed your inheritance with plentiful rain when it was weary, when it needed help and refreshment. Your congregation dwelt in it. You, O oh God, provided from your goodness for the poor. So again, the picture there of God being a great provider and caring for people. Verse 11, the Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Kings of armies flee. They flee and she who remains at home divides the spoil. So here he's using picturesque language of when they would go out to battle. And because God was with them, and as he said, marching in front of them and his presence being so strong among them, because of that, kings of nations at times, whole armies would just flee out of fear because they sense the presence of God giving victory to his people at times, even if the, 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 the odds were not the same with the armies, it was the presence of God that made all the difference in the victory. It wasn't the size of the army or the military resources. It was God's presence that would bring the victory. And as they would go out, armies and kings would flee. And he says, she who remains at home, that speaks of the wives and the daughters. Notice they didn't go out to combat. Sorry, that is in the Bible. She, doesn't say he, she who remains at home while the men were on the battlefield. 
She who remains at home divides the spoil. That is when the, the spoils of war would come back. As the spoils of war would come back, they would go through the, you know, the victory spoils and all that they would accumulate as they would take from the other nations when they would conquer territories. He says, though you lie down among the sheepfolds, again, they would be caring for the flocks and the herds while the men were away in the battles. You will be like the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold when almighty God scattered kings. It was white as snow in Zalman. Now, again, here, just picturesque language. It seems verse 13 is kind of just trying to describe as they came back with the spoils of victory, probably a description of the beauty of the nice clothing that was acquired and the women trying on these, you know, fancy, you know, ornamental robes and garments that were dipped in, you know, flecks of gold and silver and the beauty of these garments and so forth. Probably a description of that in a very poetic way there. Uh, he references as well how the Almighty scattered kings or scattered his enemies like the snow in Zalmun. Now, uh, the area of Zalmun, which is a mountain, does at times get snow on it, but it vanishes very quickly. So the idea there is that when God deals with his enemies like the snow in Zalmun, God, God can deal with his enemies very quickly. Just like the snow comes, but it disappears super fast. The idea there is when God wants to put an end to something, he can do it real quick. If God decides he's done with something or someone in a situation as his enemy, he can very quickly dethrone anything or anyone he needs to. Verse 15, a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. And the mountain of Bashan, that range there is reference to what we know better as Mount Hermon. Uh, a mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy? Again, he's speaking now to Mount Hermon here in this language. Why do you fume with enemy, Mount Hermon, fuming with envy, you mountain of many peaks? This is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. Now, what he's describing here, the, the location of Mount, Mount Hermon is about 9,000 feet above sea level. So in the area of Israel, that's a rather high mountainous territory multiple peaks, and it's one of the higher locations geographically in the nation of Israel. So it's a, a picture there, Mount Hermon or Bashan. It's a picture of a mountain range that is larger, that is higher, that's more magnificent, magnificent in a sense, and it's geographic, you know, brilliance and so forth. It's a large range. And then it being envious of the fact that God chose to dwell instead with his sanctuary and the temple and so forth on little Mount Zion, where Jerusalem's at. And the idea here is, wait a minute. Here we are, this massive, magnificent mountain. And you pick that little tiny dirt hill to be the place where you put your temple, God? And kind of this sense of envy of this large, impressive, magnificent thing, thinking, wait a minute, if you're going to pick a spot to dwell as the king of kings, why wouldn't you pick us? I mean, we're grand and large and powerful and magnificent. Why would you pick that little, weak, seemingly dirt, insufficient hill to be the place where your presence is at? And this sense of, of envy in that way, because again, think about it. If we were picking on a human level, hey, where do you set up a magnificent temple and throne? And so, hey, pick the biggest highest, right? That's how we would pick as a human. But God does the exact opposite. God picks the smallest, 
weakest, most overlooked, insignificant thing. And God says, I think I'll use that. I think I'll use that right there. And and God chooses much differently. Psalm 132 literally tells us that the reason why the temple is there in Jerusalem is actually because that's where the Lord desired for it to be. And it's just a reminder of how the Lord often chooses much differently than we do. Oftentimes he chooses the foolish things, the weak things, the base things that everyone else would overlook. And that's what he chooses to work among. That's what he chooses to use to, for his glory and his purposes. He chooses the weakest of all, the smallest mountain, if you would. And that's where God desired to work because that was his way. And often he works that way even among our lives. He doesn't always pick the biggest, strongest, greatest. He picks the weakest, smallest, and least significant. And that's where his presence and his power ends up working through. Verse 17, he says, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. And the Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. Verse 18, he says, you have ascended on high. Now that means God has to descend first. If he can ascend, right, means he had to have descended in order to ascend. You've led captivity captive. You've received gifts among men. Some translations, the old King James renders that, and I think it's a little more accurate. Technically, you've received gifts for men, for men, even from the rebellious that the Lord God might dwell there. So here the psalmist is describing how when the king would come in, and conquer and have a great victory that is the result of that victory in the victory of battle kings both receive gifts as the spoils and they also receive gifts in order to what then go back and distribute those gifts among their people right so the king receives gifts when he conquers the spoils of battle and then he takes those spoils and he goes back and he blesses his people that he rules over by then giving out those gifts that are the spoils of his victory in the battle and because he conquered as a ruler and as a king and and here it's very interesting as this is being described you know god ascending in victory leading captivity captive receiving gifts for men even from the rebellious to be able to then ultimately come back and bring those gifts you might want to jot in your notes here ephesians chapter 4 because it's this very verse from psalm 68 verse 18 that Paul the Apostle quotes in Ephesians 4 to describe how as the result of Jesus' victory over the sin and rebellion of humanity, and because Jesus triumphed in the cross and his resurrection as our king on our behalf, as the result of that, he having not only descended to this earth and lived as a man and died in our place, but then the Bible says then descended into the lower parts of the earth, I believe to where Abraham's bosom was, preaching the gospel to those who departed in death before Christ came and completed his work. Luke 16 refers to this, proclaimed to them that salvation has now been accomplished. The victory has been won. And he then led captivity captive. And he said, now there is direct access into heaven because now I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it is finished. And at that point, he then freed those who were there in a place called Abraham's bosom, who had died in faith, looking for the Messiah to come, looking ahead that the Messiah would come. And now they were able to have direct access into heaven. And he led captivity captive as he ascended back into heaven. And as the direct result of all that Christ has done, his death, resurrection, and ascension back into heaven, he now, through his spoils, is able, Paul says, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts 
to men. That is, he's now given gifts to you and I, spiritual gifts, gifts of the spirit, gifts of, of abilities to serve him and to function as the body of Christ in that way. So Paul picks up on this same verse and applies it for Christ's victory as a king. Ephesians 4 describes that very thing. Verse 19, he then says, blessed be the Lord. And this is great language. Look at it. Who daily loads us with benefits. Boy, isn't, and just really just ponder that. It depends on what you consider a benefit. If you were really to try and just be thankful for a few moments, you'd realize there really is a lot of benefits that God loads us with daily. One of them is you had the strength to get out of bed this morning. You're actually not stuck at home in a bed wishing you could be at church tonight like other people are. You have breath in your lungs. Most of you probably have clean drinking water coming out of your faucet and plumbing and air conditioning. And, and these are just temporal things, right? Not to mention peace in your soul. The joy of knowing you're going to heaven, the forgiveness of sins. I mean, the, the daily benefits that come to those of us who know. He says, blessed be the Lord who daily, not periodically, daily loads us, <laughs> loads us with benefits. The God of our salvation. That's where the benefits come from. Our God is the God of salvation unto the Lord belong escapes from death. I got that underlined. That's a great statement. To the Lord belong escapes from death. There are times when we should potentially have lost our life at different points in our life. And you know the reason why you escape death? <laughs> the Lord. He opted to let you escape death. There were situations probably where you could have died. I could have died, but the Lord let you escape death. He had mercy upon us. And there are times, whether it's a Health problem that the Lord determines this isn't the right time yet. And he lets us escape death still because it's not our time yet. He's let us escape spiritual death and eternal death because he is our God, the God of salvation. And again, that, that's the beauty of the Old Testament is implying this idea that God is the God of our salvation. The New Testament picks up on the idea and he calls him God, our savior. The idea is that our very God that we sin against actually became our salvation. He didn't just provide a way of salvation. He actually, through Jesus, Jehovah is salvation. That's what the name Jesus means. Yeshua or Jehovah is salvation. That our God actually became our salvation. God became our savior. This marvelous reality, the very God we sin against in mercy and love made a just way to actually provide salvation by becoming our very savior. I mean, it's a marvelous reality when you realize this is what God has done through Jesus, that he's given us salvation through his very self in the way that he's accomplished it. Verse 21 says, but God will wound the head. It's always a picture of the authority of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on and trespasses. The Lord said, I will bring back from Bashan, I will bring them back from the depths of the sea that your foot, interesting, he speaks to his people now. I'm going to conquer my enemies, but he somehow includes his people, that your foot may crush them in blood. The tongues of dogs have their portion from your enemies. Again, David, no doubt, seeing how this played out at times when they would go out and have great victories and conquer, and then the, the, the dogs actually would go forth and lick the blood of those on the battlefield. Again, very strong, picturesque language to picture that God's enemies are not in a good place. 
It's not a good thing to be striving against God. The Bible literally says, woe to him who strives against his maker. And so God indicates very clearly there is nothing good in the future of those who are his enemies who go on continually, he says, verse 21, continually in their trespasses. You know, I read verse 23, that your foot may crush them. And it reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, it says. And again, perhaps in some ways, if that verse already was something Paul was thinking about as the Spirit inspired him to write that for you and I. Verse 24, he says, they have seen your procession, O God, that is his victory procession, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. And this does seem to be a description maybe of David bringing the ark back into Jerusalem. If you just listen to the language, he says, the singers went before The players on instruments followed after. Among them were the maidens, the dancing women, the young women playing their timbrels, celebrating the the ark coming back in. He says, bless God in the congregations, the Lord from the foundation of Israel. There is little Benjamin, their leader, uh, representing, of course, Benjamin, the area in the north. The princes of Judah and their company and the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. So there it seems to be, again, kind of perhaps a inference to that victory procession as the presence of the Lord was coming back. It tells us that David was bringing the ark in and the people were celebrating and worshiping the Lord as they were bringing the ark back to the center of the nation. He says, verse 28, your God has commanded your strength. Boy, sometimes we need that when you're feeling really weary in the midst of the day. God has commanded for you to be strong. He's commanded your strength for you. Strengthen, O God, he then prays. O God, strengthen what you have done for us. In other words, Lord, you've done this for us. Don't let anyone weaken or undo what you've done for us. God, strengthen it, make it firm. Establish it, he's praying there. Strengthen what you've done for us. Don't let anything interrupt it. You strengthen it, make it solid and stable. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, Kings will bring presents to you. Now watch how these last couple of verses kind of culminate and we'll kind of wrap up with a final point in this. He says, because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring presents to you. Rebuke the beasts of the reeds. That would be a reference to the Nile. That is the beasts, the people from the area of the Nile. The herds of bulls with the calves of the people till everyone submits himself with pieces of silver. So the picture here is people bringing presents to God in Jerusalem. People, he says, submitting themselves, bringing homage and even, you know, gifts of silver to the king there in Jerusalem. Scatter the people who delight in war. Get rid of those who want war instead of peace. Envoys will come out of Egypt. That is from a land that used to be a a perennial enemy of Israel. People coming from Egypt to worship God, to acknowledge his presence. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. The picture is stretching out their hands in worship and submission, honoring God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Oh, sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides on heaven of heavens, which were of old. Indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice, ascribes strength to God. His excellence is over Israel. His strength is in the clouds Oh, God, he says, praising him, you are more awesome than your holy places. Lord, we don't just love your holy places. We love you. Lord, you're the one that's awesome. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. 
blessed be God. Now, what the psalmist is describing here, as you can tell, is not only the procession of God in victory and his sanctuary being there in Jerusalem and the presence of the Lord reigning there as king, but a description, and certainly this did not happen completely as it's being described here, of all nations, Egypt and Ethiopia and people coming from all different nations to Jerusalem to where the presence of the Lord is to lift their hands and worship to him, to honor him, to be able to learn from him and submit themselves to him, even to bring presents to him as well. And again, and if you want to turn there just briefly, Zechariah chapter 8 describes how this is one of the things that is going to happen. Zechariah's last book in your Old Testament. If you go to Matthew, you can just turn back to the left. In Zechariah 8, let me read to you what it describes is going to happen during the time when Jesus is reigning on this earth and he is there literally in Jerusalem and people from all nations are coming to worship the Lord. Zechariah 8, let me just read verse 20. I'll read just the last few verses before we close. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come. It says, inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us continue and go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples, strong nations, nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before him. Zechariah 8.23 concludes saying this, thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. As Jesus is there literally ruling and reigning in Jerusalem, it says people from all nations, again, during the kingdom age, which we talked about earlier, people from all nations will be coming to Jerusalem, not just to learn from him, but to worship him, to pay homage to him. It speaks of you know, 10 people from different nations grabbing the arm of a Jew and not saying, we hate you Jewish people. We want to put you to death. You're the problem on this earth. But people grabbing the arm of Jewish people and saying, we've heard that God dwells with you. Bring us to him. We want to worship him. We want to honor him. Can you imagine what that age is going to be like. But that's our destiny. Doesn't look like it right now. But that's because man can't govern himself. But thank goodness the king of kings is coming back to set up his throne. And that's our future. That's why we can rejoice. Let's stand together. Let's pray.